0: Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family owned and operated mail order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It's time once again for the Champions of the Flyway, the big day competition for bird conservation in Southern Israel. You might remember a few years back when I drove for an American young birders team. We got a podcast out of it. One of my favorites that we've ever done actually. Well, after a year of pandemic that made the event impossible, it came back last year a little bit smaller and hopefully at scale once again this year. It is a, it is a great competition. I love the sharing ethos among the teams that are ostensibly competing. And the whole goal is to raise money for a species or a group of species in a country that desperately needs the help. There are a lot of stresses on migratory birds in the region and champions is a great track record for getting money to those critical places for those people to use as they see fit. This year, the species of focus is red breasted goose. And the recipients are the BirdLife International Partners in Kazakhstan and Bulgaria, both places that host important stopover and wintering sites for red-breasted goose, which is one of the world's most threatened waterfowl species and one of the world's most spectacular-looking waterfowl species. As is usually the case, we have some friends of the ABA participating, in particular Jeff Bouton and the Kawa Scopers. So if you are interested in donating to a great cause and helping that team, the Kawa Scopers, reached their goals. Um, I We encourage you to do so. Jeff has been a longtime friend of the ABA, has facilitated a lot of opportunities through our Young Birder programs, now with the optics company Kawa. There is not an ABA-affiliated team this year, but if you want to help out, help out Jeff. Link in the show notes, of course. On the show this week, the science of bird migration is an ever-expanding and frequently surprising field. Rebecca Heisman's new book, Flight Paths, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solve the Mystery of Bird Migration, covers it all. It is out now. She joins me to talk about the evolution of the science and the people involved, all after this week's rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the middle of March 2023. I usually keep this section limited to birds seen in the relatively recent past, but sometimes something comes up that's so mind-blowing... That it needs mention here. This week saw the news that a Siberian ruby throat, an East Asian migrant passerine, was photographed on a trail cam in Santa Clara, California. The trail cam operators only check the photos every six to eight weeks. So by the time this photo was uploaded to iNaturalist, it had been some time since it was photographed. No actual person saw this bird, but it's still a California first record and, in fact, a first for the lower 48. Most ABA records score of Siberian ruby throat come from, unsurprisingly, Alaska, though there is one from Ontario as well. Another funny wrinkle to this unbelievable story, the bird was seen on the campus of the tech company, Google. So even if it had been reported any more timely manner, it is unlikely that birders would have been able to access the site anyway. One other more recent state first for the week, a great kiskadee was photographed by a homeowner in Frederick, Maryland this week. This species is widespread in the tropical Americas and is irregular in the ABA area in the southern cone of Texas and up the western Gulf of Mexico. It does have a pretty significant pattern of vagrancy, however, and has shown up in the past in Ontario, Indiana, Illinois, South Carolina, and even South Dakota. Unfortunately, this bird has not been refound following the initial discovery. And one more, not a... First, But a, an exciting find nonetheless. A young Ross's goal was seen this past weekend on Lake Michigan near Chicago, Illinois, flying into Indiana waters as well. It was refound a couple of days later at a park right on the border of Illinois and Indiana, offering hope that it might stick around for a bit. Any records of this high Arctic species in the lower 48 and even southern Canada are always very exciting. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Regular listeners to this podcast know about my interest, uh, some might say obsession, about the ways that we learn about bird migration in the 21st century. I know I am not alone in this, and Washington author Rebecca Heisman has written a book just for us, Flight Paths, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration, is out this month from HarperCollins. It tells the story of bird migration research to the present and the characters involved in figuring a lot of it out she's here to talk about it. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. When you joined me on the on the show a couple of years ago, at the end, you sort of teased this book. <laughs> uh, so it's been very exciting to to watch this come to fruition. I, it must be very satisfying for you.
1: Yeah, I think I was working on the book proposal then and didn't yeah, even know right? if it was ever going to become real. And now the actual finished book comes out next week. Yeah, it's so it's beautiful. a bit it's wild.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did you how did you think about bird migration before you started work on this book? And how do you think about it now?
1: Um, I think a lot of us just hear a lot of gee whiz facts about bird migration, and I'm no different. I mean, a lot of us might have heard like, oh, this bird flies nonstop across the Pacific Ocean, or this bird does this other amazing thing. And it's easy, I think it's easy to just hear those and think, wow, that's cool. Birds are amazing, and not think about all the work that went into figuring that yeah, out. So I guess sure. now I just think, every time I hear some cool facts about bird migration, I think <laughs> of all the years yeah. of effort that probably went into- How did they figure that, that out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I, I really enjoyed the layout of the book, uh, the progression, I get the story that you told uh, from what seemed like kind of simple mechanisms for learning about migration. Um, you know catch the bird stick something on it uh to these more kind of complex and and seemingly not very intuitive ways to do the same did this sort of progression of the book sort of mirror your own journey of understanding bird migration
1: yeah i mean i the book goes kind of chapter by chapter through each of the main methods that's used to study migration and i organized it more Mostly in chronological order of when those were developed. So it starts out with bird banding. And then like you were saying, it goes up through, through like machine learning and high volume genetic yeah. sequencing and stuff. Yeah. And so it was, you're right, it was really interesting to sort of start out digging up these really old journal articles from the late 19th century or whatever, and then right. come up to interviewing computer scientists about how machine learning works. It was quite a progression.
0: Yeah. Did you did you find any sort of similarities between how people thought about migration in those, you know, late 19th century articles and how people think about migration now? Because it seems like it's almost similar sort of ideas are being thrown around among the scientists of the day, I guess, for lack of a better word. But, you know, the methods that we have of uncovering whys and hows and whens and how oftens are so much more complex.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I think the questions that people have had have been the same for a long time and it's just been a lot of waiting for technology really? to catch up.
0: Yeah, it seemed like that was a like a real theme. Yeah. You know, these researchers came on in the early, I don't know, 20s, 30s, 40s and they're like, "Well, boy, I wish we had the I wish we had the means to discover this and now here we are." in the uh, 21st century.
1: Yeah, like I wrote about this project in the 50s where they recruited a bunch of volunteers from all over the country to count birds passing in front of the full moon through telescopes right, to, get like right, a, yeah. to get like a snapshot of migration patterns all over the whole continent. And they were trying to do the same sort of stuff that's now being done with weather radar, except the radar wasn't really available then. So you, you see kind of people returning to these same questions with better and better tools to sort of get better and better answers.
0: Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things. Um, Also, is that a lot of the people who ask some of those questions are still around to see the answers, like people coming up with answers to those questions. That's got to be pretty wild to hear about a method and then be able to call that person up on the phone or visit them and hear their perspective on these questions I asked before and the answers that are only just now coming decades later.
1: Yeah, I was talking to a number of sort of older, retired Ornithologists who sort of origin originated the fields that are now you know originated the methods that are now more widely used. Sometimes I definitely felt like I was sort of gathering a little bit of an oral history of
0: yeah, no doubt
1: of this topic because I have all these recordings of those interviews now with like the guy who first really developed the use of weather radar for studying birds and the guy who built the first radio transmitters to go on birds and all these things. Yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. So how do you, how do you find these people? They're they're still pretty easy to find, I imagine. You, I was gonna say you open up a phone book, but no, no, no one really has phone <laughs> books anymore.
1: Sidney <laughs> Gotro, who's the sort of the pioneer of of weather radar for ornithology, is still he's he's retired, but he's still active. Like he's he's in his eighties, but he's still doing radar research. So he was yeah. he was pretty easy to track down. In some <laughs> cases, it was a little harder. Bill Bill Cochran, who was the pioneer of radio telemetry, and who actually passed away last year at the age of ninety. Was a, li- was a little bit harder to find. There was a lot of emailing people at the Illinois Natural History Survey trying to figure out if anyone had current contact information. Once I even realized that he was still alive, which I didn't realize at first when I was reading his papers from the 50s and 60s. And then I was yeah. like, wait, he's still alive. Maybe I can get in touch with him. And it took yeah. a little bit to track him down, but it was great.
0: Uh, you know, The book has a lot of... Um... The really interesting sort of revelations about how we about how we know where birds go, and uh, but for me, I guess the most you know mind blowing part of the story was that the researchers were able to figure out where a bird's feathers were grown, um, which is where molts essentially, yeah, and then you know where breeding concludes, and and by the you know the chemical makeup of the feathers. Can you explain a little bit like how that works, one, and how it sort of felt learning about that because it feels like a bit of migration trivia that not a lot of people know about or at least know very surface level stuff about
1: yeah i think you're right that that's the one that a lot of even serious birders are not familiar with because everyone <laughs> yeah. knows that we put little like tracking backpacks on birds right Right, right. Of, that's
0: pretty common knowledge now. Yeah, yeah and a lot
1: of serious birders are at least somewhat familiar with weather radar as a tool for mm-hmm. studying bird migration mm-hmm. thanks to things like birdcast but yeah stable isotopes is really kind of
0: that's out there
1: Flown yeah. under the radar, maybe. Ha Maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe because it's pretty technical. But so, in in North America, usually what they use is hydrogen. So most this is going to get really nerdy for a minute. Yeah, I'm sorry, it. but yeah, but you go, asked me to explain America. it. Yeah. So most hydrogen atoms don't have a neutron. They're just they're just like a proton and an, ele- and an electron. But mm-hmm. some tiny percentage of them do have a neutron, which makes them heavier. So mm-hmm. this is what's called a stable isotope, stable because it doesn't decay, it's not radioactive, it just kind of sits there. But so there's a very, very small percentage of hydrogen isotopes that are literally just heavier than normal hydrogen isotopes. And so looking across North America, there's this gradient in the landscape of just how much deuterium this unusual isotope is out just there.
0: That piece of information is just so, it's it's a way of looking at the continent and I guess the world because you know they, people do this all over the world, that I would, not, I would never yeah. have imagined.
1: Yeah. yeah, so the amount of this stuff that's just in the environment, in the water, around varies from place to place. And in the case of hydrogen in North America, it has to do with water getting like picked up from the ocean and then moisture sweeping inland. And the heaviest stuff falls out of the clouds first. So, so you get more heavy hydrogen in some places than others. And then if a bird is hanging out in a place while it's growing its feathers, because birds molt and regrow their feathers every year, If a bird is hanging out in a specific place, that sort of amount of deuterium, this unusual isotope, gets fixed in its feathers because feathers don't change once they're grown, they're inert. And so then even after the bird takes off and flies to another place, you can pluck that feather and run it through a bunch of machines to see how much deuterium is in that feather and use that to get at least a general idea of where it was when it grew that feather. So this is one technique that people use to study the movement of birds and kind of where they came from and the landscape. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, so so, how did it feel knowing, like, figuring this out, or or <laughs> explaining this, or talking to people about it? Because, like, one of the things that I find most fascinating about the the book, and we can go into this uh, a little bit more on a, at a slightly different angle in in a in a second, but like, we think of bird research being done by ornithologists mm-hmm. primarily, yeah. But this bird research is being done by physicists, by geologists, yeah, by all, any number of people who you wouldn't necessarily connect with birds but they're still doing this work that has a bird angle yeah. that teaches us this in really insightful stuff about where birds are going and why.
1: Yeah, I talked to so many like computer scientists and engineers for this book. It was, it was really wild. But yeah, the guy who figured out this whole stable isotope thing with bird feathers for studying migration, his name is Keith Hobson. He's Canadian. And yeah, his undergraduate degree was in physics. And then um, now he's mostly known for his ornithology work, but he was originally trained as a physicist, because that's who learns about isotopes and neutrons and stuff. (laughs) I'm right. Physicists and chemists. Yeah. Yeah, and so I first learned about this when I was working for the American Ornithological Society, because I was reading all the new papers coming out in their journals, some of which used this technique. And I was like, this is just what? Like trying yeah. trying to wrap my head around it and then trying to write like a two sentence explanation of it to go into yeah. a press release oh, or that, something. So I was thing. Their, yeah. yeah, their communications person it was really interesting. And yeah, when I went to write this book, I knew that Keith Hobson was the person that I needed to talk to. Like I'd seen his name on all these papers. And all the researchers that I talked to this book were so generous with their time. I literally spent two hours on the phone with Keith Hobson just trying to wrap my head around how this works and asking him like an endless series of dumb questions to make sure I yeah. wasn't going to mess it up. But I tried to explain it. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh,
0: I sympathize with that as the person tasked with asking dumb questions to experts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you. I know what it's like. He was um, so nice about it. <laughs> I know. Yeah, most of the time they, they very much yeah. are. Yeah. Especially bird people. Bird people are really great. Um that's a great segue. You know, you worked for the American Ornithological Society for a long mm-hmm. time as their communications person. You were tasked with seeing this new research. You, you saw all this really cool stuff coming out uh, about migration and different novel ways of figuring out how, how birds are moving. And you thought, well, there's got to be a way to put this in a, a book that people are going to want to learn about.
1: Yeah, you said it. Exactly. I was their, their one person communications department and a lot of, <laughs> yeah, so I was wearing a lot of hats, but a lot of yeah. what I was doing was reading scientific papers being published in their journals by scientists and like turning them into press releases and blog posts and talking to the researchers. And I kept getting really fascinated with the method section of the papers where they explained how they, how they did it. So like, isotopes and weather radar and recording nocturnal flight calls and all these things. It's being like, this is so cool. And I feel like a lot of people don't know about this and eventually realized that maybe I could turn that into a book. Because there's mm-hmm. been a lot of there's been a lot of really good popular science books written about birds and, and bird migration, but no yeah, no a one had very really broad
0: topic. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But <laughs> no one had really gotten into the the history of how we figured all this out.
0: So were there any moments when you were working as the AOS or or even just researching this book and trying to talk to people about what they were doing where you thought like holy cow, um, it, it is completely wild how this works. Or was that like a constant state of learning about bird migration?
1: Yeah, I think I had one of those moments probably with every chapter of the book. Yeah,
0: right. I imagine so.
1: Moonwatching, which I mentioned earlier, definitely blew my mind when I first learned about it. This isn't really used anymore because radar and stuff has made it obsolete. But this was when back in the 40s and 50s, they had come up with this way of watching the full moon through a telescope during, migra- during migration and counting the silhouettes of birds passing in front of the moon as a way of like quantifying the amount of migration happening in a place. And that was really fascinating to read about. And then when I got to the chapter on the bird genoscape project, which is this project using like high volume genetic sequencing to kind of map genetic variation within the bird species to, kind of similar to isotopes then you can pluck a feather and sequence the genes and figure out where the bird might have come from.
0: That's also really weird. Yeah, I was, so I
1: was I was figuring out what all I was kind of outlining that chapter and figuring out what all I was going to have to write about and it's like, okay, so this chapter has to cover the last ice age and the human genome project. Like I have yeah. to, like there's a there's a lot of ground to cover here.
0: Yeah. I could can- you know, focus in on any one of these chapters and yeah. talk about any of these <laughs> cool things they're doing. The the Human Genome Project and, and the fact that, you know, that laid the groundwork for effectively doing these genome projects on any number of cool organisms and finding out all these sort of hidden things about where they're going. I mean, it's not just birds. I mean, birds yeah. are the topic of this book, and the birds are what we're interested in, presumably the listeners are interested in as well. But you could do this for anything. Like, it's so simple and relatively easy to synthesize or, or to whatever the term is for that, for the genome of any any organism, and find out these incredible insights into their evolutionary history, into their modern natural history, it's it's the the possibilities are still endless.
1: Yeah, and it's because of the Human Genome Project, which funneled all of this funding into coming up with easier, better, faster ways to sequence large volumes of, of DNA. First, so that we could learn about people, but now. People who study wildlife have borrowed these same techniques to figure out what's going on with bird DNA and all sorts of other animals. Yeah,
0: I guess I'm really impressed by the ways in which ornithologists are so quick to tackle these <laughs> new technologies and and yeah. you know apply them to their their research interests. So you, you, we talked about the Human Genome Project. There, um, all this post World War II technology <laughs> that became yeah. available to civilians. And instantly became, you know, the groundwork of all this cool migration research. That's it's neat to see all this all this technology being applied to birds.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a, I've, I've given a talk about the book a few times now that focuses on some of the the older stories in the book from the mid twentieth century, and mm-hmm. there, I've got a photo in there of the first transistor and Sputnik. And so I keep I keep joking yeah. when I get to those slides, like I'm probably the first person giving a talk to this Audubon chapter to talk about Sputnik, <laughs> Sputnik and transistors. Sputnik. But yeah, here you go. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Were there any sort of novel concepts or approaches that are you weren't able to find space for in the book because they're like we still don't really know how they're going to play out?
1: Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean there's there's new stuff being done all the time with late level geolocators and other tracking devices. Like tracking devices are getting better and smaller all the time and I think that technology has improved even just since I was researching it, you know, within the last few years. And sometimes I would just come across something Totally unique that kind of didn't fit into any of the categorize- categories that I was organizing my chapters around. Like, apparently there was someone in South America for a while who was like putting some sort of fluorescent paint on the feathers of purple Martins so that then when they flew back to North America, they could find Martin feathers with this paint on it. I wasn't able oh, to yeah. find a lot. wasn't able to find a lot of details. There's no published papers or anything. So don't... Huh. I, I'm not well, 100 sure know, some, what I was some saying. Some studies but, yeah. don't pan out. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But some purple martin researcher like sent me a DM on Twitter about this. And I was Like, what? <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing. You know the 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 creativity, I guess, of yeah. the researchers doing oh, this yeah. stuff is is really impressive.
1: It really is. It's just amazing.
0: Yeah. So you um, used social media a lot to find people doing this work. Um, I did as someone that uses social media a lot to find guests for this podcast as well i i feel a certain kinship it's um it's fascinating to see um how many young scientists are doing amazing work and are really good at telling you about that work in you know ways that don't overwhelm us did you find that to be the case did you were you thankful for that perhaps
1: yeah, I have to say that my my engagement with Twitter has, I, I, I've i dialed back quite a bit because anyone who <laughs> so uses Twitter us, knows yeah. there's there's been a lot of turmoil with that. But when I was writing the book, I regularly found sources for everything just by posting to Twitter. Like, I want to yeah. talk to someone who's an expert in X and I would get all sorts of replies. I literally, like I, want, I knew that I wanted to go and join scientists in the field who were using these techniques to see them in action. So I literally just posted a tweet like, who is doing fieldwork using any technique from this list in the next year and a half? And that is most of, ha- most <laughs> of how I found the scientists yeah. who I ended up like flying across the country to hang out with in the field.
0: Yeah. And many of them are in the, you know, not too far. You, you flew across the country for some of them, but some of them were like sort of in your backyard, right? I guess l- larger sense of the backyard, the larger... P- Pacific Northwest, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
1: I live in Eastern Washington, and I made a couple trips to to Boise and Montana, which was great because I was doing a lot of this during COVID. So for the first, certainly the first half of the process of writing the book, I was still pretty leery of getting sure. on a plane, as a lot of people were at that point. It's kind of things that things have shifted now, but at that point, a lot of us were still treading, yeah, trying trying no to doubt. avoid travel. So it was nice to find people within driving distance who I could yeah. go hang out with and doing cool stuff. Like it's not, I wasn't. Comp- you know, compromising the, the final result by choosing people who were close to me. Like no it just, yeah. it just so happened that the largest yeah. project ever to record nocturnal flight calls of migrating birds was within a half day's drive of my house. So when I found out about <laughs> that, I was like, clearly, I have to go to the place where they did this and learn Kismet, more about yeah, it. Yeah, meant to be. <laughs> Kismet yep. for
0: knockmake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, the last part of the book was really taken up a lot with how you know regular birders are influencing this sort of this sort of work. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the things that I love about birding and Is that you know, there's always been this real close relationship between professional academic ornithologists and regular birders. It it goes both ways, too. You know, not only are regular birders doing a lot of the work that uh, turns into this really groundbreaking science, but also, you know, all of this work that scientists are doing ends up being of interest, even if it's just trivial interest to regular birders. Do you find that a lot? you know, a lot of researchers and the people doing this sort of cutting edge stuff are very aware of that, you know, connection. A lot of times they're hobby birders. In addition to being researchers, a lot of times they work with a lot of volunteers. You know, it's they always seem to me to be very appreciative of the work done by volunteers and the work done by the birding community to help them along uh, on this work. Did you find that to be the case?
1: Definitely. Yeah, I think so. I think ornithology is really unique in that it has this, like, amateur component to it like there's not a lot not a lot of other branches of the sciences that have people who are sort of devoted to it as a hobby so it's it's interesting that there are that that there are and have always been these two these two sides of it professional scientists and amateur birders and, and and that goes that goes way way back like it used to be you know in the 19th century very very common that someone would have a day job as a doctor or a lawyer or something, and then be publishing their observations in ornithological journals kind of on the side. And as science got professionalized, that shifted a little bit, and those lines became a little bit clearer. But but there's still a lot of cross-pollination between the scientific ornithology community and the serious birding community, because birders have the ability to contribute data to these amazing databases like eBird.
0: Do you find that there are questions that a lot of these researchers have that they don't feel like the technology is quite there to, to solve? So I'm thinking, you know, there's this sort of um, timeline that goes from these people doing this work in the 30s and the 50s, who they did the technology wasn't available yet for them to answer some of the questions that they had. And now we're at a point now where a lot of the technology is available and it's cheaply available for people to kind of answer some of those questions. Are there questions being asked now that people don't have the technology for yet, but they can see down the road a time when that might be available?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. The first thing that comes to mind, I think, is just that there's still weight limits on how small of a bird you can put a lot of these tracking devices on. And those weight limits are going down all the time. Like, we're constantly figuring out how to make lighter and smaller tracking devices that can go on smaller and smaller birds so i think that's part of where the cutting edge right now is just being able to make smaller cheaper easier to use transmitters so that we can more easily gather like the the volume of and deep and level of detail of data that we really need to get at things like fine scale migratory connectivity for a lot of yeah. species yeah
0: it's interesting you bring that up because uh you you set aside a portion of the book to talk a little bit about the ethics of doing this yeah. work especially with uh, these backpacks i imagine a human walking around with a backpack that's maybe 3% of their, our body weight. It's not, maybe not something that bothers you at first, but it can be something that wears on you over time. And and I think that a lot of ornithologists are very aware of the impact that these um, tools have on the, that yeah. they're studying, both from a scientific perspective, you know, if the thing that you are studying is impacted by the means by which you're studying it, then the data is sort of funky, but also ethical concerns, like mm-hmm. is the bird's well-being, is it worth it? And I, I was really appreciative that you put that in there because I think it is a, it is a big question as this technology improves where, you know, we don't want to rush into this sort of thing. But ultimately, we're sort of against the clock with, with regards to climate change and, and sort of the stresses that birds are dealing with. So we need this information, too. It's, it's, it's a balancing act. And um, it, maybe there is no real answer to it, but uh, it's definitely something to think about. And I was glad that you included that stuff in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean I still I'll I'll post something to social media about the book and include a photo of a bird wearing a transmitter and I'll get comments from people being like, oh, That yeah. poor bird, no one asked that bird if it wanted to be part of that study. But I I really think that without exception, every scientist that I talk to who uses these devices that birds wear was was very aware of the potential for them to have an effect on the birds that that wear them and wanted to do everything they could to minimize that effect. Scientists do take this seriously and they they gather data to study whether and how these devices affect the birds that wear them. And they're really conscious of not going above a certain like percentage threshold of the, like the percentage of the birds total body weight that they're adding onto it. But yeah, as I was researching kind of the the three chapters of the book that collectively cover all of these, these wearable tracking devices, I, you know, I was thinking that people, some people reading this would have questions about like, why is it okay to put these things on birds? And this was, this was another use of Twitter. I think I literally put on Twitter, who is a philosopher or an (laughs) ethicist who could talk me through the ethical concerns of using these, which is how I met William Lynn, who's a basically a professional ornithology ethicist who consulted with like the fish and wildlife service on the, on whether or not to call barred owls to protect spotted yeah, owls. Hit
0: the stuff. bullseye it's like, in terms yeah, of like, okay, that's asking. exactly who I need is <laughs> yeah, someone exactly.
1: with a, with a philosophy background who now thinks about the ethics of ornithology studies. All right. Like that person exists. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I do think that the, the conclusion that we came to that a lot of researchers come to that, you know, it is important for the whole of the species for the whole of the ecosystem that you're trying to do something about it. the, Needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Um, we've heard that a lot in in, con- in a lot of different contexts in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, I happen I happen to agree with it, and uh, you know both intuitively and if I think about it for any long period of time. And it's it's good to know that researchers are thinking that too. And I I, I guess I ju- I'm just happy to know that they're considering it. There's a certain best practices that everyone sorts to sorts to ab- has to abide by or, or chooses to abide by. I should say.
1: Yeah, I definitely land on the side that as long as researchers are doing everything they can to minimize potential harm on individual birds, that the value of the data collected, which can then, you know, inform conservation efforts to improve the chances for entire species, definitely outweighs real but usually small impacts on the birds that are carrying the devices. Because you can't can't get the chance that it will affect a bird, like that wearing one of these devices will affect a bird down to zero. There's never going to be zero effect. But in, in a lot of cases the effect is very small. Like they've, you know, they'll they'll do controls where they'll ban some birds and see how many birds that just have a band but not a backpack, you know, return from migration versus the birds that are wearing a backpack Mm -hmm. and the effect is usually negligible. And if they, if they find that it's not negligible, then they back right off and don't use that device on that bird anymore. Like they're always trying to kind of adjust and figure out where the, how they can collect the best data with the least effect on the birds they're studying.
0: For sure. You, you mentioned that you've given some talks about this, about this topic, about this book uh, to local Audubon chapters. What has been the response to regular hobby birders uh, to some of the information that you've presented here?
1: i have been pretty fascinated by it. Yeah. I have I figured. Yeah. Yeah. I gave a talk at the San Diego bird festival a few weeks ago. Oh, and I'm going to be, great. yes, I'm going to be doing a few more bird festivals and it's going to be at the Harney County bird festival in Eastern Oregon in April. If anyone, if any of your listeners are going to that, I'm the, I'm the Saturday night speaker for that. Very nice. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun just because I think that this is an aspect of, of birds that a lot of hobby birders maybe haven't given a lot of thought to. And I so agree. they, they seem to be really, really taken by it, which has been really gratifying. I get, as, so far, every time that I've given the talk, everyone has laughed at all the parts that I thought were funny. So that's, <laughs> that's I'm, I'm the, doing that's something the right. Best yeah. feeling as yes, a speaker. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like I wrote this specifically to be a laugh line, and you you yes. followed through. that. Like
1: great. I think parts of it are very funny, and so far everyone <laughs> seems to agree with me.
0: Uh, Rebecca Heisman is the author of *Flight Calls: How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration*. I don't know if they solved it, but they've certainly gone a long way towards uh, <laughs> <laughs> towards figuring a lot out. Um, my, it is available. My publisher
1: had to say in the subtitle.
0: <laughs> no doubt. No, I understand that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is available wherever you find books, including our partners, Beauty Books, uh, where ABA members need a discount on all their book purchases. I just checked today, and *Flight Paths* is on it. Thank you for your time, Rebecca. Uh, Congratulations on the book. It is a a really fascinating read. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the EBA. You get a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Beauty Books, and a whole lot more. You can find out how to do that at aba.org slash join Special shout-outs this week to Dylan Beely and family of Amelia, Ohio, Benjamin Stallheim of Bellingham, Washington, and Luke Valentino of Wheaton, Illinois, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who suspects that since the tech giants just copy each other anyway, we'll undoubtedly start seeing others jumping on this rare bird effort, probably starting with FaceDuck technical production is by john lowry whose best birding experience in california came when he went an online auction to see displaying water birds on gree bay additional help with social media comes from george muñoz who's disappointed that the aos didn't call ridgeway's rail appler rail appler rail Rail, app clap it it was a clapper rail subspecies a long way to get there you can find us online at aba.org and on social media most everywhere as american birding association on twitter we are at aba i'm a little surprised google uses camera traps to census creditors on their property instead of the more immediate results that come from streaming Netflix. Questions, comments can come to podcast at Aviator Oregon. am Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.